To ship, of course. Build engineering, DevOps, release management, and everything in between. It's the Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build, and John Twitter, and at SoberBuildEngineer.com. Uh, who's with me? This is Sasha at BrandyRedhead.com and Sasha underscore D on Twitter. How's it going, Sasha? It's super. Oh, we had thunderstorms last night, like Armageddon-type thunderstorms. Like, they woke me up three did times. It, did it crash a tree into your house again? No, no. And you know what I found out about the tree that was hovering over my house for a week is that the reason it was hovering and didn't fall on my house is because a power line was holding it up. Oh, that's great. <laughs> how, yeah. how awesome is that? Yeah, that's, yeah that is awesome. Uh, well, for this episode, the crew is going to sit down with Sandy Metz, author of Practical Object-Oriented Design with Ruby. Sandy discusses both object-oriented design uh, with us, and but also uh, as it relates to uh, DevOps and some other various topics, so stay tuned for that. But first up, news and views. Uh, we have a story that's actually a couple months old, but thought it was interesting, kept it in the queue. Uh, Sears is turning their old stores into data centers. Apparently, they've created a business unit that has their uh, real estate holdings, and they're starting to... Uh, just turn old shuttered stores into actual data centers, storage, and then also cell phone equipment towers. And I, I guess they have 3,200 properties with 25 million square feet of space, so it sort of makes sense. And it includes both Sears and Kmart stores. We'll link to the story in the show notes. I just thought, I don't know, uh, that uh, did you see this, Sasha? I thought it was kind of an interesting use of, of uh, an old uh, 20th century stalwart. It seems weird that, I mean, with all of the, the modern requirements of data centers, that you could actually put a data center in an old building and expect it to be okay. But, I mean, it seems like a great idea if, if that's, you know, if it's going to work out like that. And all of a sudden, when I was perusing the article, it made me think that maybe Sears would try to be like a budget host provider, too. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go make all those data centers and stuff, I suppose they don't have that same kind of uh, excess capacity problems that Amazon had and stuff. But well, you know, idea. maybe maybe that's where the NSA is storing all of our phone calls and stuff in, in old Sears branded <laughs> data centers or something. No, I mean, I actually, I think it may, it's a great idea because if you think of uh, like Kmart stores, like the layout of the store, if you remove all the shelving, right, I mean, that they're basically rows and rows of, of what you could put with rack space. Right. Um, I mean, you could. So, I just, you know, the cooling and stuff like that is what I wonder how they're, and, and modern wiring and stuff, it seems like it's going to be uh, challenging. Yeah, I, I would imagine they're gutting the whole building and, and starting over, but, but yeah, yeah. And then I would question whether or not that was actually cheaper than building, buying, I suppose if you have the, you either have to do something with the building or not, so I suppose right. well, if it's they at own least the, a wash. And if they own the real estate, I mean, it's a way to make use of that real estate if they're not going to actually put a commercial store there. So right. anyway, interesting. And what is becoming kind of a, a standard of news and views, some Oracle news, they're changing the Berkeley DB license. And a lot of people are saying this is actually going to kill Berkeley DB because of the licensing change. We'll link both to the uh, discussion in the open source community in the show notes and then, of course, the actual article. I guess they're changing the license to the AGPL, which is it's not even a license I'm familiar with. It's the Wait, what's a Berkeley DB? Well, so Berkeley DB was this uh, database library that's been around forever, uh, and it, it's often used for you link against the Berkeley DB library and applications where you you need kind of access of the database, but you don't want to have you know you don't have like MySQL running or anything like that, so you can actually link it into your application, and then it it uses flat files. Uh, actually, Subversion had a Berkeley DB option to be the backstore for the actual data back in the day, uh, okay. and and I don't actually know. So I guess, oh, here we go. It's you. It's the GNU 
a Faro general public license. I've never heard of that one, but it is a GNU license. It's weird. Anyway, it's one. It's another. You know, Oracle's changing the license, and the community sort of feels like the tablecloth has been pulled out from under them. So they're suggesting Open LDAP's LMDB. Uh, and so, well, anyway, we'll link to the the story. But and then finally, uh, this evening, uh, we have uh, Mitchell. Hashimoto, uh, author of uh, Vagrant, announced Packer, a tool for creating multiple machine images, uh, and, and he announced it, uh, I guess, last week, right? Yeah. Uh, I say, it's funny. I saw him on Twitter. He was complaining about uh, having to write code to interface with fat file systems, and I was like, what? Why, why are you doing this? But apparently it's to do uh, deployment of uh, virtual machine templates, but it's a tool to do, uh, you can basically deploy the same VM template on uh, AMIs for EC2, VMDKs for VMware, o- OVF for VirtualBox, uh, all sorts of different formats, and then you can kind of, because you've got that layer in between, you have a template, and you know it's going to be the same across the AMI and your VMDK. So it sounds really super interesting. I'm sure you heard about this, Sasha. Yeah, I have. I really want to look at it, but, you know, I'm actually on vacation right now, and so I'm actually <laughs> ignoring all things infrastructure because uh, inevitably those things come with a yak shave built yeah. in. Yeah. regardless of how awesome they are. And um, I'm actually playing with just writing code on my vacation, so I'm waiting. But I am uh, really excited about having having it there so that I can work on building an OSX image, although I looked at it a little bit, and I haven't seen anything out there yet that lets you do that. But I am excited because it's neat. Well, so I, I was actually just looking at, at the uh, platform support page. It's extensible through plugins, so I wouldn't be surprised. And the code's all on GitHub. We'll link uh, to the, the GitHub. Uh, in the show notes as well. So I, I'm sure somebody is working on a plugin for doing OSX installs. I hope so, because yeah. um, somebody who writes, it's written in Go, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Neat. Yeah. Which means it will be zippy, right? Yeah. I hear yeah. that's what makes Go go. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, uh, very interesting. So next up, Sandy Betts here on The Ship Show. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So today we have a special guest, Sandy Metz, author of Practical Object-Oriented Design in Ruby. Welcome to The Ship Show, Sandy. Thanks. So I wanted to start with, when a lot of people hear object-oriented design, uh, they, they typically think of the Gang of Four book, the, the object-oriented design patterns book that uh, many of us grew up with. And I, I remember in college I had a test on it. We had to de- memorize all the design patterns. But your book is actually not about design patterns per se, uh, you're talking about object-oriented design from a, a little bit of a different angle. So I was wondering if we could kind of start with that and, and talk about like how you're approaching the concept of object-oriented design. Sure. Uh, you know, first, first let me say the Patterns book, the Gang of Four Patterns book, was, was a miracle in my life when it was released. Like, like I'd already been uh, writing code for a while, and that book, the whole notion that there were pat- repeatable patterns that could have names was an amazing thing. And, and I think for people who weren't around then, it's probably hard to imagine the, the difference it made in how we all thought about writing software. So I think that book is actually truly amazing. It changed my life. But having said that, I kind of hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, lo- I have a love-hate relationship with it because it's like many of the sort of academically toned books. It is a recipe book of patterns 
And even though they try with every recipe to tell you the situation in which you would use it and how to apply it and where it makes sense, it's a bunch of little things. It's like shrub, 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 shrub. <laughs> right. I remember, too, they, they have, like, the sample applications, and it's it's like a word processor in X Windows or something like that, where it's it's not, there's no concept of the web. There's yeah, well, it was back of, in the day. It was published right. in 94, right? Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. Mosaic, the first web browser came out in 93. I mean, the, right. the web wasn't really on their horizon. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it can make those patterns seem less than useful and less than modern, can't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting for the rest of us because most of us haven't even uh, a lot of us on the the assistant side of things haven't ever read any of those books. Yeah. We don't have any clue at all. And, and I so haven't I, I haven't read them. I'm sorry. So you, <laughs> I, I'm so a you, humble I'm a humble ops guy. <laughs> and so I I don't know with the in the ops world like, like imagine that and, and actually I I would guess this is true. So let me just let me ask you if this is true. Like there, I'll bet there are things that every DevOps in the world does. And I'll bet they all do them. I'll bet there's some good ways to do them, and I'll bet there's some really bad ways to do them. There, there are certainly some patterns that we have established. We're not as good at writing them down, I don't think, or at least uh, there, there aren't, uh, there aren't academic books, at least, talking well, about the things we do. There are a few, but there, it's less so than the kind of more computer science-oriented uh, things. I mean, there are a few, like uh, Theo's book about scaling internet architectures is kind of you know one of those uh, operations bibles. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't really have, we, we're getting there, but we don't have as much, the, the body of work isn't as large. Um, so folks don't stop to write things down nearly as much, I think, as DevSide does. Yeah, I don't and know. And why is we that? Just, we just keep it, we keep change. it running, and, and if it's running, then it's okay. <laughs> or well, that things, things change so fast. We don't actually have a lot of, a lot of us don't have academic backgrounds that would cause us to think that, so when I left my first ops job, I thought that all I knew how to do was restart servers. Pretty much, and I was shocked, <laughs> shocked to, to, to discover that people wanted to throw money at me because I knew I'd seen every wrong way to do something ever. Right, so it's a feature. We don't actually think that what we have to say is, or no, we don't think we know anything value. The fact that we can codify certain things, I think that's a that's a real thing. And our, our value of, is typically experience, less so than than something we've learned. I mean, it's it's not a it's not a skill as such as it is seeing wrong ways and right ways to do things. Yeah. I was just going to ask. So you know, th this is really interesting. Uh, uh, the conversation about you know, Seth, you were saying it's all experience, but you've been uh, Sandy in the industry working. Uh, it's a program for uh, I, I believe it was thirty years. And that's experience. And I'm curious why, you know, now that you've heard it's like ops people sort of value experience, and but we haven't gotten around to writing the book or the, the cookbook of our handbook of how to do these things. Why do you think that is? What, what do you think is the difference there? Is it, a, is it just that DevOps, quote unquote, is so new that we haven't reached that crest yet? Or, or is there something fundamentally different, do you think? For me, I would say, okay, I, I have... I have a completely non-academic background, mm -hmm. and so everything that you guys have just said really resonates with me. Like, that's how I learned to write code. Like, I got a job and did it. And there, there is a whole parallel academic track on the development side that has a, a ton of good ideas. And, and the Gang of Four book, the Patterns book, is like one of them. But, th but there's, a, there's a huge problem, even on the side of the fence, where there's a lot of sort of research and sort of academic ideas about how to do things. Like, there's not a very good translation from that body of work down to the boots on the ground where people Real like life. you, yeah, are doing yeah. it every day. 
Yeah. So that's that's actually funny that, that you bring that this so this point actually came up at uh, so I've been in Budapest at the Ramp conference and we've been making the distinction between software engineering and computer science and how the it's the boots on the ground versus the people who have studied the you know kind of the, the patterns and anti patterns but may not have actually written software that has been used in production and the kind of yeah. delineation to which which one is. You know, software engineering isn't quite a discipline in the same way that, like, civil engineering is, where civil right. engineering, you build a bridge, and if somebody dies, you're liable for it, where software engineering, no one takes your license to write software away if you write something that loses data, for example, or well, there's no, no medical data. There is no they do in Canada. There is no well, such thing as a professional license, right? For right, for, uh, right. There's know. no, there's no certification quite. I, I worked for many years at a hospital, and we used to joke that babies will die. Well, it's funny. I used to work in retail, and I we used to joke that no small children will die, and people need to get over there, you know, <laughs> there themselves. You yeah. Right. So, and but I want to kind of bring this whole thing back to the book, where right. so the idea that a lot of us don't have that formal background, and many of us come up from a background where we uh, actively believe that we can't write code. I mean, I did for years, and and when I first mm -hmm. started doing config management, I was like, I hope you don't actually expect me to be able to write Ruby because it, it's I've proven that I can't write anything at all unless it's like Bash. And at that time, I didn't understand the difference between procedural and object-oriented and, and the other kinds of writing code things, right? So what has been really great for me is that I have just, you end up writing code whether or not you want to or whether or not you think you are until all of a sudden you are. And so then when I picked up the Pooter book, which I don't even know where it came from, I came yeah, from how, how on earth did you find it? My Twitter stream told me that it was amazing, and for some reason I happened to be looking at my Twitter stream at that moment, and I don't remember where I saw it. I think it came through one of my lists, so either like my lady tech list or a friends list, and I don't even know. It was like cool. the end of May, and I was like, okay, and I went, out to the, I went out to Amazon and looked at it. It was like, cool, I'll buy that. It's small. I'm flying all the time. Uh, and I had been printing out chapters of my Prague Prague, uh, just my the pickaxe book to read on the plane and stuff. And so I thought, well, that looks good. And there was a lot of endorsements. And I I picked it up and I was immediately enthralled because you use the the example of the cat with the tail that can be stepped on, which I love. <laughs> so I then... I was going to bring that up because uh, <laughs> I was I was reading the sample and I, and I have to tell you, Sandy, like from just reading the sample, I was pulled in just by the sample. But I was going to say, Sasha, uh, as soon as I read the cat example, I was like, oh, I know why Sasha got hooked. Well, and then uh, she goes right into the bike metaphor, and I'm like, my God, I love this woman. And where is right. she going? Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask, ask you that, Sandy. Like, uh, one of the things that, I, you know, you see this in the reviews, and, and like I said, reading the sample, it really comes through. People have just been praising uh, your voice and the, the way that you talk about these really technical topics in a way that has humor, and uh, has really approachable examples. And I, I wanted to ask a little bit about, you know, was that hard for you to cultivate that voice? Or did you find you were doing presentations and technical writing that just comes out? Or a little bit about that? Uh, I mean, okay. So I'm a woman of a certain age, right? I'm 56 years old. And I, the, I last wrote something of any length. I mean, I write email and documentation right. and code. I last wrote a paper of any length in high school. Oh, I was wow. a music I was a music student, for God's sake. We, didn't, oh, we, wow. write, we wrote music. Right yeah. yeah, there you go. So so I had no idea if I could even write a book. I, like, I was very... I, it took a long time for me to agree to do it. <laughs> and, and then when I started writing, like, it's in that Addison Wesley Professional Ruby series. So there was some resistance on the editorial staff to the tone of it when I started sending them samples. Mm -hmm. But really? I... Yeah, and I was... 
I mean, it's like anything, right? Like, I, it took me two years to write it, and so I got more confident and better about the writing as time went on. I, I you know, I practiced it every day. But, but early on, I was, it was very uncertain about like, what, what, what can I say? How should I say it? What should I do? And, and I finally just, I was so frustrated, and it was so hard, and it was taking so long that I, I just finally kind of gave up, and it was like, this is what I got. This is all I got. They're gonna either take it or not publish the book, and either way is fine with me. <laughs> and, and, and so it, it, it wasn't intentional. It was, I, I mean, you know, you have to pick an audience when you sit in the dark in the morning and write. And so who's it for? Who are you telling the story to? Like, like, like the first thing is, am I trying to make me look smart? Or am I trying to make smart people that don't have access to this information, am I trying to give them a way to understand? And, and I was very interested in the latter rather than the former. I, I, I just, I wanted to say the things I wish someone had told me. And then I only had one way to say it, and that was the voice I have. And so fortunately, it does seem to work for a lot of people. I've had a little bit of feedback from people who think it's too informal. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I mean, I, I just tell them, you know, bless them, right? Right. Like, read another book. I'm sure yeah. there's a book out there for you. There's well, a rocks book out there for them. <laughs> well, so, you know, though, it's interesting because, you know, we were talking about the Gang of Four book, and, and you're right. In some ways, I, the parallel I would sort of make is the Gang of Four book and books like it are very important, but they're kind of like cookbooks of recipes that you look up and you yes. follow, whereas your book is more like, I think of it as like the Alton Brown book that has a lot of personality about cooking and about the science of cooking and the, the physics and chemistry behind it. And it's not just, here's a bunch of recipes to use. Mm -mm. This is a and, story about how to write code. Right. And and I think that's that's super helpful to people. You know, I was actually reading in the first part, and I really liked, you were talking about the kind of the distinction between uh, novice programmer, like, there's kind, you can kind of walk through the progression of, like, programmers that don't know about object-oriented design, and then how that makes their application look. So I think, I think you said something about, in that type of environment, it's like, yes, I can add that feature, but it will break everything, and then you sort of evolve to, no, I can't add that feature because it wasn't designed to do that, and that's where people are using object-oriented design, but they don't they don't really understand how they're using it, so they're like over designing it. Yeah, I really like. Yeah, yeah, I really like kind of how you you went through that progression. I did want to ask, by the way, and you kind of mentioned this, this is part of the Ruby series. It seems like a lot of what you talk about is really applicable to any object-oriented language, but you focus on Ruby. Was there a reason for that? Is it just what you've been using? You know, is Ruby what you've been using the last few years, or? I Right, I I was a small talk programmer that was lucky enough that I segued through Java a little bit and then uh -huh. found a home in Ruby. Uh -huh. To you know, seven years ago. Yeah. So, so I'm a definitely a favor in favor of dynamically typed languages. Mm -hmm. If that's not too nerdly. Um, <laughs> and and uh, it's do we want to stop for a second and just uh, define that for people who don't know the Shh. difference? Because I mean, there's uh, there has been a lot of discussion out in the world these days between. Uh, static and dynamic. And I'm, I'm not sure that I can explain it in a way that makes sense to people who, I mean, I'll try, okay? So imagine a program, well, first we have to, de we have to agree that we know what object-oriented is. Does that, does that deserve an explanation, Sasha? What would you say to people who, to DevOps who are perceived, how would you describe the distinction between procedural and object-oriented? Like, like it, it almost feels like that's, it almost feels like it's a waste of people's time to try to jump to there. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the cat is the cat that has the tail that can be stepped on, but the cat also has a bowl that it does stuff with that it yeah. eats out of. So, yeah. uh, and it has an owner that it yells at to get up in the morning. Yeah, and this, these things all happen in your house, let me guess. Yeah, so I mean, I get the message every morning that I need to get my... <laughs>
out of bed. Well, so it's it's as an aside, it it is funny to me. You know, when I was reading the the book uh, that you do talk about message passing, because mm-hmm. too when a lot of people sort of in my path of coming up, when we think object oriented design or object oriented, the language that tends to come to mind is either C plus plus or Java. And yeah. and when and when you're I'm teaching, sorry. yeah, no, seriously, it, it's funny too. And that's actually something I I'm one of those people that I think object oriented, I think C plus plus, and then I think train wreck because. C++ has just, right, right, and there's so many rules and there's so many ways to, to like, have memory leaks and all that kind of thing, and what I liked about your book is that you can tell that, I'm glad you said small talk or objective C where things are messages, you're really going back to the heart of what object-oriented the concepts were back when they were invented, and, yeah. and you're really removing that that connection in many people's minds between you know C plus plus is object-oriented. That's what people yeah. think of, right? So, that connection. So, so here's the thing: without uh, separate from the exact technical details, statically typed languages have this premise: you will screw up unless they enforce a lot of rules on you to keep you from making mistakes. And the rules then require a lot of cruft in the syntax of the language. And so you pay a price for the... They, they promise they'll make you safe if you'll wear a straitjacket. Mm-hmm. And that straitjacket involves the compiler and a lot of different declarative things that you have to do in the language. I, this is going to cause, like, huge fights. I was going to say, that's you know. not going to... That's not. No, yeah, that, the statically really, typed people... Let, let me say this. To the podcast, so I think well, we'll let it. me say this. Their their opinion, like their opinion, is true from their point of view, and it. And I wouldn't say that it's not legitimate, but I would say from my point of view, as someone who's been a lifelong dynamically typed language person, what I find is that those statically typed languages, they they say they confer a safety benefit, and the cost of that safety benefit is very high. The dynamically typed languages are much more willing to give me a gun and just let me shoot myself in the head if I want to. Or a gun is probably the worst metaphor. They give me tools. They give me all kinds of tools. And I can build anything I want. And I can build things that do bad damage to myself. But they expect that I'm a smart, careful person and I will use my tools for good and not evil. And so that how much power you're willing to give the programmer versus how much and how much you trust them to do the right thing with it, that's really the boundary between static and dynamically typed languages. And there are some benefits to statically typed languages that you can't get in dynamically typed languages. The, for me, the only one that I would ever, the only one that ever seems important enough to me to want would be speed. There's a kind of speed that you can only get in statically typed languages. So if, if you need you know, millions of operations a second or whatever it is, you, you'd almost have no choice. But the dynamic languages gives me lots and lots of power, and I'm willing to be responsible for doing things. And so the languages are much easier to write, much easier to use. They're much there's no compile cycle. There's you can do magical things with them. And so to me that that's a divide. Like if you trust people, then you can give them a dynamic language and let them do magic with it. If you're afraid of people, then you kind of need to enforce you know statically typed languages on them, so that they won't make some mistakes that you fear they'll make. So there you go. Isn't that's a recommendation for dynamically typed language, isn't it? There you go. Yeah. I was like, that was probably the best definition I've I've heard before. Um, as somebody who's not, you know, formally trained or even educated as a as a programmer, that's actually very helpful for me. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. yeah I so mean, you should talk to a you should talk to a rational statically 
type person to get the counter argument. You know, I think there are two sides to every story, but having you know a fair amount of experience in the world and having used a lot of dynamically typed languages and, and enough statically typed languages to hate them, you know, maybe I'm not the best person. Maybe I'm not the most unbiased. But you uh, also person. said the right tool for the right job too. Yeah. I mean, if you can at least make that acknowledgement, I think it makes you you're, yeah. you're pretty reasonable, really. I mean, I, yeah. I see most statically typed languages, at least in my experience, have again been for the I guess the right reason for the speed reason, especially you know when you're when you're developing for like something that's low power or you're developing for something that's got a strict set of requirements and you need those millions of ops a second, then you really you you just have it's it's a the choice has been made for you before exactly. you, you know you, you yeah. don't get to choose you don't get to have the kind of language argument it's this needs to happen this fast and we all know that the only way to do this is with a statically typed language yeah. and so, you know there's they have those new sort of hybrid things coming where they're statically typed but they infer typing some of the functional languages are a little bit that way so they look right. dynamically typed enough for me but they're actually statically typed under the covers and so that might be a nice, you know, that might be a benefit to everyone to get the strength. Like what we want is languages that have this, all of the strengths that we like and none of the weaknesses. And who knows, maybe someday we'll have, you know, something that gives us everything we want. So one thing I wanted to touch on, because uh, you talk about it in the book, and it's actually, I mean, the conversation about dynamic uh, typed versus statically typed. You, were t you talk a lot uh, in the intro uh, about... The, the cost of change, uh, yeah. reducing the cost of change, and and it it what what I like about that is is you you talk a little bit about the business side and the business metrics. Uh, mm -hmm. You talk about uh, about cost per feature over a time interval that matters. I really yeah. like I really like that phrase. Um, and and so you you know you might make the argument that dynamically typed languages will allow you to do that a little better, but you also are setting up for why good object oriented design allows you to do that. I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because it seems like that section and that discussion of the or that treatment of the topic, you're really sort of speaking to managers or, or the business side about why they should care and should educate their engineering staff on good object-oriented design. And I think that's, by the way, super important that you made that argument, but I wanted to ask, like, you know, where you came to, oh, I need to put this section in. Because you also talk about code metrics, too, which is great. You have a, a treatment about that. So Tell us a story, Sandy, about, the, about history and, and something that uh, caused you to need to write that. Oh, it was. It's yeah. interesting to me that you read that as a message to management, because actually I wrote it as a message to programmers. Oh. And so the thing that, to answer Sasha's question, the, the, like right now in the Rails community, so, you know, we got, we got Ruby as the programming language and Rails is the web framework that's built on it. Uh, Rails has been around for long enough so that people who, and, and Rails is a framework that would let, will let people who don't have much programming experience and certainly have no object-oriented programming experience, it will let them be very successful at initially putting up websites. It sure and, does. I keep telling people that. Yeah, totally. Oh, my gosh. You don't need, you, Rails is so friendly. Like, you can pour web pages into it, and they will come out in people's browsers. It is so easy. You, you need no very little. It's a wonderful framework. However, if, the, if you write a web app, if you pour some, you know, content into Rails, and you basically write a web app, and it grows, as soon as you deliver it, people are going to want change. And the, the longer it succeeds, the more change you're going to make. And it's going to grow up into something that's not a simple little Rails web app. It's a huge tangled mess of code that needs the application. It needs to be organized according to, it needs to be reorganized. The code is organized such that it's hard to make changes. And so a time comes when 
all those apps grow up and they're a disaster. <laughs> they are. No, yeah, and yeah, and no, the well, time I'm... is now in the Rails right. world. The time is right now because the uh, Rails, uh, you know, one came out four or five years ago, and the, every app that's still alive from that era <laughs> is now causing people serious, serious pain. That's a, that's so, a long life life. Uh, it is a yeah. And and you've probably seen this with all language, right? Because I've seen what you, exactly what you're talking about with Java, and yes. I think we've all seen it with C plus plus. And those yes. are older languages, so you're just saying it's like Ruby. Yay has come of age. Congratulations! But then also you have these older legacy apps that are from the, yeah. the initial version of the framework. And and That's so really now in the Ruby and Rails community, there's and 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 also the especially the Rails community, like the Ruby community, has sort of a tone of uh, maturity and a, a real premium on friendliness. Like there's a Miniswan acronym. The guy, the, the guy's name that wrote the Ruby language is Mats. He's Japanese. Mats says something. We call him Mats because nobody can I pronounce love it. his real name. I, yeah. My favorite thing about that is that actually that he's Japanese and that his, his Ruby reads more like English than any language I've ever worked on. It's truly amazing. So we live and die by this acronym, and it, it's Miniswan, and it stands for Mats is nice, so we are nice. <laughs> right? That is the... That is sort of the mantra of the Ruby community. Now, the Rails community started up a little later, and it's more of a rock star community, right? They, right. Rails love being cool to right. begin with, and, and they love the rebel image, non-enterprisey, right. you know, brilliant right. entrepreneurs. We're all Hipsters. about the world. Well, it's exactly. very, it's very. They were modeled. It seems to me after DHH and his. Well, I, I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to infer, imply things about DHH, but certainly communities do reflect their leaders. Right. And it's, and it's right. a cool thing. Like you cannot, right. you can't. I, like I don't blame all those. You know, they all seem like boys to me because I'm older. <laughs> like, like I don't blame those boys for loving what they did and being proud of it. Right? Well, and, and the thing is too, you know, it's it's totally easy to understand. If you did time in an enterprise Java shop writing a oh, shitty yeah. Java app, like it's totally easy to see, like there, screw this, I'm leaving, and I'm gonna go to do this cool thing, and I'm gonna have a lot of pride about that. That totally mm -hmm. makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, the I just like has... you did time. Yeah, time, as if it were a gulag or something. It's, it kind of is. Have you ever heard of enterprise? enterprise? Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, guys, you know, you all know I have. So I just. That's true. You well, and you've been at game companies, and I hear that those are death marches in, you know, at the gulag. Oh yeah, no, it is. It's it's. I, I know what that's like, and so to do something that is different is is important. But carry on. I just I, just, I like that, that phrase. But so so now we're at the growing pains point, and there's a big. There's a big discussion in our community about whether these mature academic ideas are more of going back to the gulag or whether they're useful and helpful. Uh, now, that's you can really see that on the DevOps side and that community because I think there there was DevOps was sort of created as a community and there was a reaction to that. But then when you start talking about process, big P process, and how to bring that transformation to bigger companies that actually need a little bit of structure. It's mm -hmm. the same sort of thing. It's like, well, no, we don't do big P process. It's like, well, if you're working with a certain type of organization, you might need that. So that's actually, yeah, very relatable, I think, to a lot of people on the ops and, and interacting with development side. Well, it's, I, I'm just going to second that as a challenge, right? Like, like, our, like our goal as practical people is to get work done. And right. to get work done in the right time frame for the cheapest way possible. And I will steal any good idea, even if it's academic. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not going to hold a good idea against its... Uh, I'm not going to hold the origin against a good idea. It's interesting. You see this a lot in a lot of communities where it's like if it comes from academia, it is 
a stupid idea. And it and it's funny to see, for instance, the, the quintessential example is idempotency and Mark Burgess's treatment of it versus Adam Jakes' treatment of it when he describes it. And so you kind of see that where it's like, oh, it came from academia, let's ignore it. But then you have people like you that are actually in the middle and, and working really, really, really hard to do that translation in a, of the concepts that are important, but in a way that's very relatable. And that people, you know, it, it's funny, once they realize it's an academic idea with a bunch of research behind it, they're like, oh, I didn't know that because I thought you were talking about, uh, you know, cats stepping on cats' tails <laughs> and things like that. I mean, I mean, I feel like I have extreme cred in this domain because when I wrote that book, half the stuff in it I thought that I had made up. And now that I'm a, now that I'm a little better educated, I realize there's, there is almost not a single new idea in it. Like, had I been better educated, I could have saved myself a lot of trouble in my working life because mm -hmm. many ideas that I came to through pain and uh, through painful experience and lots of trauma were out there in the academic community. I, I, I just didn't understand that they were there. They and, were in books for th that were a thousand pages long. And they were t I couldn't read them. I, couldn't, right. I could not bear to read them. Yeah. And so now I know more, which makes it, well, now everything, everybody thinks I've read everything now that I've written a book. So I have <laughs> been slogging my way through a number of them. <laughs> And, and I, I can tell you, they're, they're like amazingly good ideas for practical people. For practical people like us who just want to, who go to work and want to get work done. There's useful stuff out there. It's, it's almost like we need to form, you know, clubs and give people assignments and have them bring back book reports. So Somebody needs to write cliff notes. Yeah, so we don't have to read everything. But, but <laughs> the ideas are good. I mean, we can't. Like, as practical people, we can't ignore those ideas because they're incredibly useful. And, and whoever got to them first and named them, like, just even having names in common, like the patterns guys, right? They gave stuff names. Right. And so now we can all say the observer pattern, and it means a whole conversation gets shortcutted right. in, in the name of the pattern. That's so useful. Like, like, you guys should write a DevOps patterns book just to give names to things. It, it would it's be a been service. It's actually discussed. We were trying to do something like that last winter. I was working with some guys, but it was really tough to find the time. And, and we were they were actually slogging through the, the pattern books, not the academic, not the programming pattern books, but the Alexander pattern. pattern books. I have that yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, I have that book. It's awesome. Yeah, they said so. I saw it. It was enormous. I was building a house when I got it. <laughs> so I was very interested in all those patterns. And, and, and it was very, you know how knowing the words for things shapes your ability to think about yeah. them? Oh, yeah. It frames the context in the, of the yeah. discussion. Yeah. So I, I wanted to go back uh, to, we were talking about communities for a second. The one thing that, that I also noticed in your, your kind of intros is you talk, and I think it's really important that you did this, you talk a lot about, you make a lot of connections to art. And you talk about mm -hmm. sculpting, you use that as an example couple times and then you talk about furniture and uh, one of the things that I thought because you know when, when you're actually working on a software team and you're having a discussion about the design of the software those can be pretty passionate discussions those can be discussions where if somebody says the wrong thing it's like I'm gonna flip the bozo bit on that person or whatever mm -hmm. I mean they can be very and what I you, you had a line in there that I really really liked and you said design is a studio where like-minded artists sculpt custom applications and what I liked about that is the fact that it makes the connection that not all art is the same and not all artists do the same kind of art and it sort of infers that the reason sometimes these we all think we're engineers and there's a objectively correct solution to the engineering problem but you actually kind of point out that no no these are tools and we're artists and we can use them in different ways and still arrive at the same web application or whatever but maybe we had it took a, t a slightly different path and I really like that up front you talk about that. 
it, it feels like there's a fundamental divide, right, in how we think about programming. And, and it, it's certainly true from, like, maybe not your bosses, but certainly there's a there's a kind of boss out there who wants, what, what was that, Mythical Man Month kind of oh, thing, uh, right? Yeah. So there, you know, there's, there's this belief that what, the belief from others that what we do is countable, interchangeable, right. reproducible. Cognitive wheel. I never looked at a place like that. Yeah, widgets. Yeah. Yeah. But no practitioner, no one who practices our craft would tell you that. We understand that it's an art and that we're all different and we, we bring the sum of our experiences and our creativity and the kinds of intelligence we have into building solutions. And, and that also those solutions are very often better with some collaboration, improved by collaboration. Right. But they're individual. And so I've, I fall firmly down in the artist camp. I mean, I'm... I don't see how anybody could could be in any other camp who does this for a living. Right. Well, so I, and the reason I wanted to call it out is because back on the DevOps side, a lot of times you see organizations interested in DevOps because they hear I can deploy a million times a day, and I have the push button to deploy, and it's great, and I can uh, leverage all of these business decisions based on if I have the, I have the DevOps. Mm-hmm. But but then a lot of people talk about well, DevOps is really about culture and organizational culture and how the teams work together, and that goes to how do the artists work together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you frame it in that we're talking about language framing things, when you frame it in in the context of artists, people artists care about their work. They care about what it looks like and how and how it gets produced. But if on the DevOps side, if the business is just looking at, well, I want to deploy a hundred times a day, and they're not treating the dev teams and the ops teams as artists trying to work together and produce a beautiful painting or sculpture or a piece of furniture or whatever you want to describe it as, they're gonna miss the point. They're gonna miss mm-hmm. the boat on that. Um, and so I, I just liked up front you kind of contextualized as in part of uh, introducing why this stuff is important that you kind of went down that road and, and talked about that. It was really cool. Uh, I mean, it would be convenient for the people who pay the bills if we were interchangeable widgets. It would, it would, make, <laughs> it would be, right? It, it, would make yeah. every, it would make all cost estimation safer. Right, right. But it would actually truth, make it meaningful, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you could count things and you would know what you had. Right. But the truth is the individuals involved, you know, determine the processes that you have. And that those, I mean, we've all had them, right? Those sort of brainstorms of creativity that where you suddenly understand a thing and right. you can fix it or do it or explain it. Like they can't be predicted. And, and if they're lucky, they buy you and you can do it, <laughs> right? This is a great segue into something else I wanted to ask about because so, – so you were talking a bit about metrics and the line of code mm-hmm. metric and how that one's broken. And then also, though, you were starting to talk about design and big upfront design versus object-oriented design. You talk a little bit about that. But the thing that I really – that caught my eye is you also bring in Agile. So it's it's interesting how you weave all of that together. But you're talking about you don't know what the design is going to be up front. Mm-hmm. So you shouldn't do a bunch of big upfront design. And then you talk, though, about a break-even point mm-hmm. on design. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. I, I if you could describe that again, because just that that concept is is really important. And I think when a lot of people think, "Oh, I'm going to go do design or object oriented design," they think it's this very heavy weight. You know, it's almost like just in time design or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. It, and so, uh, well, so like I def- I define design as how you arrange code. So so as 
like you guys, you're DevOps. You do stuff. You write stuff down. You write your Bash scripts are designed. Your Ruby code is designed. Well, you hope. <laughs> well, it is. It has a design, whether you come to regret it or not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, to me, that's all design is. Design is how you arrange the stuff you wrote down. And if what you want is for you want to get the most bang for your buck for the time that you invest, and that like we wouldn't do. Like everything we do goes back to the bottom line. We want to get work done. We want to get product out the door. And there's, but the problem is there's often tension between getting something done today and being able to get a, a change to that done next week and being able to get a change done to it a year from now. And so you often, there's a balancing act. There's this tightrope we walk where on one side we get today's work done at the cost of making it harder to do tomorrow's. And on the other end, we, we c construct these elaborate castles that are our guesses about the far distant future. And when that future never comes true, that time turns out to have been wasted. Like there's a sweet spot somewhere that lets us arrange what we write today so that, it, so that we can change it later. And to me, that's what design is. That's what I'm looking for. Are you sure you're not talking about infrastructure and ops? Because that, <laughs> what you just said is like the problem we wrestle with. It works for and, everything. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you yeah. got, like I, you know, I've been around a long time, right? So I've done a fair amount of work that I, I would guess maybe people would call DevOps. Like I've, well, I want, I mean, I've done all kinds of software and hardware support. Hey, mm -hmm. if you had to own your app, then then you were doing yeah, DevOps. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I did performance shooting on mainframes many years ago and installed software. You can do that. Uh, <laughs> back <laughs> in the day. Shooting. I thought they just the, kind of came. <laughs> No, no, like when you don't have enough, well, I mean, it goes back, it, it's, okay, this is, I'm not going to tell a lot of old stories, but yeah, if you don't have <laughs> enough hard drives and you don't have enough controllers and your the arrival rate of request is too high, your response rate eventually goes to zero, and right. that's kind of a DevOps problem, and, and the tools aren't good to tell you what's wrong, right, you just print out huge stacks of nine and a, you know that nine by 14 green bar and right. you, look, you oh, look at wow. numbers for with a long time dot matrix printer that's right with the yeah. dot they drew they would draw graphs of arrival rate yeah so yeah. you have these and they would have the little, they, yeah with the stars right yeah that went yeah, sideways yeah. exactly they'd use the asterisk character yep. to draw, draw bar charts yeah and, and then not not knowing anything one would flip through that stuff hour after hour after hour and look at the different numbers and try to figure out what just happened why did I we go down yeah, I have to say I only know that because uh, I can remember my grandmother worked at the county. And oh my God! Kid. Now we're in grandmother land. No, 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 no. No, when I, when she worked at the county, and she used to bring uh, that bring stuff home, home for me to yeah, play with, and that's actually got crowns. me into computers, right? And you yeah. sometimes too did the banner program, like yeah, do uh -huh. banners, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Snoopy that's on the that. doghouse. You probably yeah. saw that back yeah. in the day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I, actually, I'm from that era. I started in that era, so we did a lot of DevOps. You know, everything was. But they like they didn't they didn't call it that. But that's what it no, was. No, they didn't call it that. Yeah. Well, so actually, that was great because Sasha brought up this point that she wanted to ask about operationalizing code and sort of your experience with that. It, and it sounds like I mean you've played the role of release engineer, operations engineer over the years. I, and I was curious, mm -hmm. kind of, what your take on this sort of DevOps explosion? Are you kind of like, yeah, yeah, we we were doing that back in the mainframe days, or or if there's something different about it uh, that you see? Well, hmm. well I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am, like, I love programming. I love writing program codes, uh, writing applications. And so I have not, even though I enjoy the sort of hardware DevOps side, 
I have not been, uh, I've been grateful that other people wanted to step up and take that role in my mm -hmm. absence. I mean, here's the thing, it's like, it requires so much expertise that it's hard to know everything you need to know to do both. So when you say DevOps right here, what you're really uh, referring to is the, the operationalizing of the environment and things like that. You're not actually talking about uh, interacting nicely with, with separate teams and things. No, yeah, I'm talking, of, okay. I'm talking about the first rather than the okay. second. I'm okay. I, I mean, I'm making assumptions about some of the things that you guys end up doing and being responsible for. You make stuff go. Yeah, you make really? stuff go. And so, and what it does is it lets somebody like me, who used to have to both make stuff go and write the stuff that went, be able to specialize on uh, one side of that fence and let the other side of that fence, uh, I can ask, I can be deeply grateful that someone else who has expertise in that handles the other side of the fence because it's a, it's a lot. Well, so you know what's interesting though is that with a lot of the web scales, I'm going to get in trouble for saying web scale, but with a lot of that stuff, <laughs> Some people really hate that, but whatever. The, the large-scale stuff that we're doing these days with public virtualization uh, and the, the ability for developers to now have instant access to any kind of server they want instead of having to wait four to six weeks for someone mm -hmm. to lovingly handcraft them something with everything on it that works mm -hmm. requires actually more systems knowledge than uh, people have had to have in the last 10 years because it used to be we just hand you a server and you could dev on that. Mm -hmm. And if it didn't work, we'd help you figure out why Java wasn't running or why ATG couldn't start or yes. whatever. But now you have um, you have the power. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't really know what to do with it and they don't like that actually because now they have to understand how to get Tomcat to go, and if it doesn't work, they have to figure it out themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's it's actually kind of a it's well, and turning having, itself around a bit. I mean, having done all that myself, like it, like when I worked at Duke, the very first uh, Ruby and Rails apps we put up needed Apache, and I was the one that compiled and installed Apache on those machines. And I distinctly remember like <laughs> trying to figure out what okay this config thing like. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I understood about compiling because I'd done it forever, but I'd never run a make file on the Unix box. And so, uh -huh. so this is what they got, right? I am the expert, and and it, this is terrifying. I can distinctly remember looking at the Apache config, the base Apache config that's full of comments like, "Don't leave this the way it is." <laughs> <laughs> but I can promise you that Apache ran, and I installed it just that way. And and I'll bet you there's a million people like like having expertise. In that whole world, the software and hardware side of secure, safe, scalable deployment, that's a full-time job. And I am deeply grateful that no one that people no longer expect me to do it every day. <laughs> and very grateful that that you guys are out there. But I can totally see how like even even in the world I live in, there's like like I'll bet you're fighting for credibility all the time. It's less of a problem these days, but it, it does. It's still happening in the enterprise. So I think the web folks are really starting to get their their due. But a lot of the folks who still live in the enterprise are uh, so, still considered cave trolls. Well, so yeah, I, and I, I I disagree with you on that, Sasha. Because what I would say like, is, well, the bit about so what I've noticed, and and I'm really glad you actually uh, said that, Sandy. Is is I've noticed when you talk to people that consider themselves engineers or programmers, right, and, mm -hmm. and they develop software. They really don't have an appreciation for the operations side or the release engineering side until they've had to work someplace where they say, had to do it. This, exp this, show, this tells you how little experience they have. Right. 
And mm-hmm. and and so what's interesting to me is is Sasha. I think I think in the enterprise because of the organizational dynamics, that's more commonly true. But I've worked at startups. I think it's also an experience thing. I've worked with at startups that were very small, very agile, very lean, with programmers that just came out of school and they had this. Oh yeah, I can throw a web server up and it's fine. And of course, the application three months later, you know, after all of the exec demos were done and everything hit a wall and wasn't uh-huh. deployable. But they think that stuff is really easy, and I think it's just it, unless you've had to live it and support it after the fact and not be able to move on and dump it on the ops team, you don't realize. Like as Sandy was saying, there's a whole kind of book of of knowledge that is very generalist knowledge, but to make it actually work, you need to know. It's like all you need to have the entire puzzle put together. Right, that's right? true. It's, it's a big puzzle. Well, I guess I, to a certain extent, I'm self-selecting these days. So yeah, I, yeah, I don't exactly. actually see a lot of the problems anymore because if people don't appreciate me, I can walk. Yeah, yeah. make a better make better choices about where you work. But it's you true. Know, a lot of people are stuck. Well, and people like from the in the enterprise. The highest status people are marketing because they bring in revenue. Product, right. yeah. Right. right. And then as you move further away from selling, the tiers of people get increasingly less respect. And so if you produce a product that visibly sells and generates revenue, then you're next down the food chain. I'll bet those guys think of DevOps as nothing but negative cash flow. Right. Well, that's the big thing is that ops and IT organizations are considered well, were traditionally considered cost, cost center. centers, yeah. Right? yeah, and not yeah. and not uh, a rev- and that's fortunately starting to change a little bit. People are uh, starting but, to get yeah. the message that uh, companies who don't sell a, a technology product, who still think they aren't technology companies, are going to fail eventually. If not this decade, then probably the next. Yeah, so and so you know that change, like making it clear, like sales are important. Okay, we all we know somebody has to sell. We know that, but. Having a product that works to sell <laughs> has a lot of value. That can stay up in the night. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that too. And, and, yeah. That's one of, and that's one of those things too, like uh, as uh, Sasha was saying, when, you, when, you are, when you're the one getting the pager call as a developer for your app that went down, that's one of those. You start to respect that work and you start uh-huh. to change the way you develop the app. So, yes. Um, so I wanted to ask uh, one thing. This is a, a topic that is in the last few years has, has had the spotlight shown on it, and uh, there's been a lot of discussions about it. I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, women in computing is a big thing. There's a, a lot of focus on sort of uh, the issues related to that. I wanted to ask you, you've been in the industry for a while. Have you seen any changes in the last few years, positive or negative? Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So over the arc of my career in technology, there have been massive changes. But the changes are, 30 years ago, there were always women in the bathroom at conferences. When I first started programming, it was 50-50. And mm-hmm. I, I can't really, like, I'll make up a reason why. I don't, I don't know if this is right, but this, this feels true to me. It used to be, when I started programming, all you had to do was have the knack, right? And, and you get trained on the job, because there was no academic place that held... Right. Right, that held a li- that get, that held out that license that you had to have to get a job. Well, all, I remember all the pro, the computer science courses at my college before there was were all electrical engineering courses, right? Mm-hmm. They yeah. were electrical engineering department. I went to Votech school. No, uh-huh. I was a music student, and and and, and it's one, so it was a trade. Programming was a trade in 1978 when I got a job because you couldn't go to school and learn it. And, right. and what that meant was. I mean, in some ways, it's weird. In some ways, it's a little bit like the market pressure right now, where there's been this explosion in need for people who can do it 
and it doesn't matter all that much if you have academic credentials you just have to have proof that you're competent and so back then there were tons and tons of women and then uh, this is a correlation but so I just so I, I I'm not going to imply causation. We we resolve you of of that. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to imply causality here. But as soon as uh, you had to have a computer science degree, you had to have a math degree. You had to go into a department. Let me just say a few things here, and you can infer your you can you can infer your own conclusions. As soon as you had to go into a, a university department where the teachers were primarily men and the courses were primarily guys, some and where women often didn't weren't made welcome. Were, or were actively discouraged, very often very smart women went to those things and thought, I can do, I'm smart, I can do something else. Yeah. And, and so women left in droves, and there was this huge gap in the sort of timeline where, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, all of a sudden you needed a computer science degree and no women had them, and all of a sudden there weren't any women. It feels to me like things are turning around a little bit now. Um, I, I don't really know why, part, maybe partly because... It's so much fun, and those women of us who are still here, I mean, Sasha can probably speak to this. Like, like I want, I, I enjoy the community. I love the guys. I love going to guy camp at conferences, though it would be great if there were more women there. Like, I, I feel I'm actively trying to support. I, I'm actively trying to uh, tell the women that they'll be welcome and talk to the guys about how, uh, the private club maybe has gone a little downhill into kind of a hunting camping club and that there's a good reason why people who are not in the club might not feel welcome when they show up. They try to take the edge off the bro. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's nothing weirder than being in a conference talk that's got like 600 men and three women and having them put a porn slide up. I mean, it, like, I think that uh, it's not a feeling that men ever have. And I'm, I'm not saying that uh, the guys who do it are bad. As much as perhaps they're dumbasses in that moment, <laughs> right? And and so the, and it's easy. I, I know that the women, you know, when the guys aren't here, we get a little crude ourselves. And so I don't hold it against them. But but it, out in the public world, it it, it feels like uh, it feels like it's a it's like a teeter totter that has been weighted on one side so long that. I'm willing to push a little bit on the light side yeah. in order to balance it out. And I feel like it's going to take that now. I mean, one reason, you know, like I got guilted into writing the damn book, and I'm going and pretty much speaking at every conference that asks me because I want to visibly, I mean, I want, for the women in the community, I want to show visibly how welcome they'll be because I feel very welcome. And for the guys in the community, I want to make it normal to see women on stage. That's why I'm doing a lot of the stuff that I'm doing, because it's, it's certainly not because I love public speaking, oh. for sure. But, I mean, yeah. and I know I said a lot of the same stuff, right? Because I got no problem with bro for the most part. I, I grew up in IT. For the, when I say that, I mean my, all of my real jobs have been in IT. And 10 years ago, you were right, it was it was uh, harden the fuck up or get the fuck out. Mm -hmm. And you learned to deal. And so now, you know, I'm pretty well adjusted. But... and hanging out in a crowd or in, in a private crowd or with people that you work with and being crude is one thing, but uh, extending that outside into the public place where, where context is not always understood is not always great. Or making the workplace where you are working uh, uncomfortable for new people who don't understand your tone, too, mm -hmm. as well. So being a little mm -hmm. more sensitive to how people perceive you when you have new folks in the office and stuff. Yeah. So would it uh, be accurate to say then that that you would say that the vector, the direction of the vector 
is in the right direction, or at least pointed in the roughly right direction, but the magnitude isn't quite <laughs> quite there yet. The the magnitude of change. I I, I think that's well put. Uh, the I mean, there's a lot. There's a fair in some communities at least. There's a fair amount of backlash now, right now, on this mm -hmm. issue. And I always find, for all these issues that feel like social change, when the backlash gets loudest, it means you've won. And mm -hmm. right, there there wouldn't be a backlash right. if if you weren't if winning. You weren't threatened. Yeah, right. and so it, if you weren't making awful. people think. Exactly, and so uh, the the backlash is painful, and especially painful for uh, focal points. Yeah, the focal points. Thank you. That's the perfect way to put it, right? Like one thing, like, like I have mixed minds. I go to conferences. Like I'm pure nerd. In and I'm I'm like this is probably blowing my cover right now because I'm assuming other people besides us will actually listen to this podcast. <laughs> A few do, yes. <laughs> but in in, you know, in general, when I go out in public, I just do nerd. I'm just nerd. I'm an example of nerd, and and I want it to be normal. But I I tell you, I cannot go to a conference without being asked in all of the private settings about gender. Like, and, and, and since most of the people at the conferences I go to are men, this means that men ask me all the time about what they can do to make... Oh, I get uh, the same thing! Yeah, and so in some ways it's a I'm just weird, the guy right? asking. Yeah, but that's alright. I mean, it's alright. Like so in some weird way, we're carrying the banner for all womankind, right? But, it, but in another... And, and I, I'm not all women, I'm just me. But at the same time, it makes me very hopeful. Like the, the combination of the backlash between, you know, with some people who often want to be anonymous on the internet, and the and the sort of fleeting wave of men who ask me what they should be doing and how they can help, I, I find very hopeful. So I'm, you know, I'm, I feel good. Like, like this is going to change in a way that makes sense and is good for everyone. Uh, Sasha, did you have anything else you wanted to ask about? Have you done anything with like Puppet and Chef or configuration management stuff? I have not. I'm a, I'm aware of them. I've downloaded the products and looked at them. <laughs> if I had to do DevOps, I can. I, you can believe, believe me, I would be using them. <laughs> well, so the, I guess the only reason I really ask is because uh, that's where a lot of the inexperienced programmers are coming from today. Because with the explosion of open source into the mainstream in the last few years, so what, to the point where enterprises are like, "Give us the open source." Not when I first started, it was, "No, we must pay for something so we can mm -hmm. sue people if it breaks." Right. Yeah. So I mean, this. Is, and how'd that work out for him? Well, I hear that actually I had a client once who actually needed to lay down the pressure on Red Hat to fix something right now. Uh, but otherwise, you know, I was at a client where they were like, you have to publish, you have to pretty much give us a dissertation justifying why we can have this free software because otherwise, mm. um, you know, stuff like that. So really, I think it's really changed in the last few years. And so I was just kind of curious to know. A lot of the folks coming into programming now are like me, and that's where I came in was was with config management and stuff like that. And that's uh, a lot of the uneducated or unformally educated folks writing code. And that's really what was so great about the book for me, because I've read a bunch of that stuff over the years, and it's all gone in one eye and out the other mostly for me. Mm -hmm. And you know, I read like the chapter on duct typing was super. I mean, I immediately understood everything about duct typing, and the the list of how to tell that you probably have a hidden duct type in here somewhere was amazing. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Like, I, this is the first book I've ever had, I think, since college—not even in college, because I never bothered—but uh, where I have uh, page corners turned down and things underlined so I can find stuff later. Yeah, and so uh, Fletcher told me he's he's highlighting stuff in his Kindle, like all the time on that. I mean, it's it's just one of those things where I want to be able to go back and find the thing that you said because I'm going to forget it. And I did. I actually the 
the uh, what not how thing. I've forgotten mm-hmm. like three times, and I keep having to go back and remember whether that it's uh, what not how and not how not what. But yeah. I mean, the the stuff that's in this book is so amazing for folks who have never who don't have the formal understanding of of stuff that anything outside of procedural coding. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so every time I talk to someone, okay, like you. Uh, who like I told I tell people in the intro that they should have done some object oriented programming before they read the book and and then I keep and I and I thought you know you don't know when you're writing a dang book in the dark thirty at home all by yourself like you don't really have an audience right so I, I made an assumption about who it would be useful for but you're not the first person I've talked to who had only written Ruby scripts from from a DevOps perspective or really code that was supposed to be object oriented but obviously not. I don't, well, I, like like I, I don't know. I it's it's very cool that it is useful in that way and it makes me want to tell all the DevOps people like like if you think it would be useful, like I I mean to make I mean to be clear and I mean to help. And if there are DevOps out there who are using Puppet and Chef, they need this information. Like their lives would be so much better if they had a little bit of understanding about sort of the underlying way to structure code. And so I just want you to go tell everyone now. I'm trying. I have a whole whole section in my last talk that talks about how you will be programming whether or not you notice. uh, By the time you you notice, you'll be writing code and it will be really bad. But you'll be writing code because you won't be able to help it. And I have like the thing. The thing I have is it's pu- since it's published by a major publisher, I make almost no money, so I can recommend it without a conflict of interest. <laughs> Why did you write it? <laughs> I wrote it. I told them no for many years, and actually, I, I wrote it in the end because they told me they finally marshaled these two arguments, and they're arguments that we've touched on today. Uh, I used open source software, but I wasn't given back in any public <gasps> way. Somebody used that argument on you? Yeah, they used it, oh. and. There was no woman's name on a hardcore technical Ruby book. Well, seriously, that was the second half of that book, too. I was like, where has this woman been all my life? And and well, and so... had this huge fangirl thing going on between... Well, but, so what do you do if you're me? Okay, Sasha, if she <laughs> made that argument to you, then I just caved it. I'd, I'd, I'd said no for three years at that point. And then at that point, I'm like, that is just evil. That's cruel to use those arguments because I could not say no at yeah, that point. It's true. Uh, and you, and you, but the cool thing is, is that... They are um, the second one, at least, is entirely, entirely fulfilling its promise. I hope, and it's possible. I mean, that the I don't first know. One, the, the argument of the first one, I don't like it so much, but the idea that what you gave back like, is helping so many incompetent programmers like me get to understand things in a way that no book has ever managed. It is cool. I love that. I, you know, that. Ne- let me just say for you guys, if you want to write a book, or anybody listening who has ever thought about writing a book, like this part, the the part of being useful and and then having people say it was useful, it never gets old. It's like I makes, get that sometimes, and it's nice, right? Yeah, it is. It makes all the pain and suffering to try to get it right. Like like writing code, you know, writing code. You can write crappy code because you got tomorrow to fix it. But writing something down to tell people like how to behave, like it felt like it was being chiseled in tablets, right? I yeah. I, I felt really the need to. I felt the need to give people very explicit advice, which I was extremely anxious about. Right. It, right. And, You'll and be all, for that. Yeah. And so like it was a, it was stressful and a lot of work, but. But having it be useful makes every every bit of pain worthwhile. So, will so, you write us a book on testing now? Please? <laughs> oh man, testing! Oh, you know, isn't chapter nine enough? Um, I, I, I don't get, know. Read. I read it. I gave a talk this spring, which is enough. Have you? Have you? It's on my list. It's on yeah, my list the magic watch. tricks talk. Look at uh, yeah. watch that magic tricks talks, and then let me off the hook for writing a book. <laughs> 
I just want somebody to write something I can understand. <laughs> All right. It's going to test their heart. Well, it is. I know that. The book again, Practical Object Oriented Design in Ruby. Uh, you can grab the first chapter sample on your Kindle, which I did. Uh, and uh, as someone who's done that, I can tell you the sample will hook you. Uh, and I'm actually going to go onto Amazon and purchase the rest of it because uh, I, I want to know more about the cats and what happens when you <laughs> step on their tails. Uh, Sandy, it was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the ship show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. And we'll be uh, back in a minute. Welcome back to The Ship Show. So for our last segment tonight, we're doing DevOps Dear Abby. We haven't done it in a while. Uh, we sent out the call uh, this last week for questions uh, and tweets with uh, DevOps Dear Abby. And so we'll start tonight with a question from at with Needle, uh, who asks for advice on trying to do DevOps or collaborate in general as an introvert. So Sasha, and you actually asked for a clarification, uh, Myers-Briggs, introvert or shy and insecure. Or I insecure. did. And, and she said MTBI <laughs> introvert. Yeah, so she yeah. said Myers-Briggs, which yeah. is, I was just mostly looking for what she's talking about. Somebody who's painfully shy or somebody who is just not somebody who is good at, you know, peopling. Right. right, and right. so my answer to that, actually, being someone who is act, I'm actually an introvert on the Myers Briggs scale, is uh, we use this in biking a lot. It's HTFU, and then go home and recharge. What's HTFU? That's a, harden the f up. Oh. So you'll have to mute me on that. <laughs> you'll have to bleep me, but basically that's the idea that sometimes you just need to bull through things that are uncomfortable, and um, that's what introverts do: is we we deal with people, and we sometimes even enjoy it, and then we go home and recharge by ourselves. Yeah. And a lot of folks in, in IT can actually, I think, appreciate that. And so I'm not entirely sure what other context she might be asking about, but, I mean, not all of us are charismatic people managers, and, and that's just the way it is. And, and the other thing that I've actually really learned being somebody who isn't any of those things myself is that uh, leading by example is one of the best things that you can do when you don't know how to get people to do things, if that's what she wants. Yeah, so uh, my advice, it is funny to me, So, uh, and I'm glad actually that you asked about the clarification on Myers-Briggs because uh, I actually am an introvert on Myers-Briggs, and every time I say that at a conference when this topic comes up, people seem to be surprised by that. Because introversion on the Myers-Briggs scale is not shy. Right, right. So there's a cartoon uh, that I like that kind of uh, describes, I think it's like how to interact with introverts and, and there's this cartoon that actually sort of explains it uh, for people that, that think introvert, you know, might be confused about introvert versus shy slash insecure, right? So we'll post that in the show notes. The only advice that I can really give about that is that if you think of an introvert's ability to deal with people uh, as a glass and and you know or, or a gas tank that you know you kind of get drained from dealing with people. Um, the more that you can actually sort of uh, learn about yourself and how to recharge and what active you know what you need in terms of so for me it's like I if I'm uh, at a conference or something after the conference like introvert wise I'm totally drained and I need couch time I need like a couple days of just evenings of just like playing video games and chilling by myself. Yeah, totally. um, if you can figure out what that is for you, you could actually make that fuel tank of being able to be an, an extrovert for a short amount of time bigger. You kind of can f create a reserve so that you uh, can go through a day or a week 
uh, where you're really, you know, intensely working with other people uh, and interacting with other people, but then you know what you need to do to take care of yourself and give yourself some some recharge time. And so I, I think it's, you know, we Sasha, you, we talk a lot about uh, self-awareness, uh, and that's just one of those things that you you get to be a better introvert in some sense when you know how to take care of yourself. And ironically, when, when you learn those lessons for yourself, that means you can actually interact longer with uh, and be more extroverted for longer periods of time. So it really yeah. is just yeah, a skill that you sort of develop over time. When I did oh. my first thing, uh, pair programming, I oh, yeah. went home at the end of the day and was like, nobody Don't talk to me. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't even have on my IM chat for like a week. Yeah, I got definitely. used to it. Yeah, yeah. And our next DevOps Dear Abby question is from at uh, Sigji, I believe, and you said this is uh, Jen Davis, right? Yep. Yeah, and she asks, uh, it actually wasn't a DevOps Dear Abby, but I suggested that it should be, and so we're just going to do it as a DevOps Dear Abby. She asked, is there a holy grail of testing an API, an example project on GitHub, or dot, dot, dot. So, uh, Sasha. Yeah, I have been looking at testing a bunch lately because um, as a sysadmin and... and Stuff. I don't really have a background in any of that, and I don't really know much about it, and so I'm begging everybody who knows anything to talk to me about it so that I can absorb their wisdom. So <laughs> and you were, you were, you were I, I saw kind of a back and forth. You were uh, looking for information on, like, TD, t- test-driven development. I right? was, I'm doing unit testing right now as, like, my vacation project. Okay. So nobody laugh about me doing work on my vacation. No, I was actually, I was actually, when I saw you doing that, I was uh, a little jealous, A, that, that you were doing it, but B, like, that's very disciplined of you. I was, I was proud. That, so, yeah. Yeah, there are a couple of different things. First of all, the question is, are we asking about uh, unit testing or uh, integration testing? So unit testing is when you don't actually touch the internet for that kind of thing. You just basically mock out an internet call and um, test the behavior of your, your code to see if it's actually doing what it's supposed to do, not necessarily that it's able to talk to the API and bring back intelligible information. Right, and so there's there's mocks and stems for that, and there's this really great article that if you're trying to understand how to test things at a unit level for API work, uh, we can post the the article in the show notes. It's by Martin Fowler, and it's a couple years old, but it actually talks about the difference between mocks and stubs and the different kinds of behavior that they test and things. And and it was uh, it was really great for me to read a few days ago. Uh, and then the other thing is integration testing, which is basically writing tests to make sure that your API, or that you can talk to the API and that it gives you back the right information. And I don't actually have any, this is a great project to try, but there are a couple of things that you can look at. One is the Faraday Ruby gem, which is basically a connection library, but also includes a test adapter. And then you can also look at, for, uh, for, for mocking, for unit testing, you can look at uh, WebMock, which is heavily used, I think. And then you can also just look at the usual Ruby uh, test unit and things. So mm-hmm. with testing, it's just a matter, especially when, like I said, like Jen, like me, if you don't have the, the development background, it's just a matter of, of slogging through a lot of information and, and understanding yeah, yeah. how to make things go. So uh, you know, my advice actually is pretty similar to yours. My background, uh, again, not we, we didn't focus on testing and really, and it's it's a topic that's, you know, uh, actually super important. Uh, and so I, I started to try to learn more about it I, I, recently as well. The one suggestion I would say that you take a look at, it was just actually random, a friend of mine uh, who who does QA uh, and, and those sorts of things was looking at this tool and it looks pretty interesting. It's called Postman. We'll do a, a link in the show notes, uh, gitpostman.com. And it's an HTTP client for testing REST web services. So, uh, Jen, if you were talking about, like, how do I test 
a RESTful API on a web service that I'm doing. Um, their website is actually super slick. It looks like the tool, which is uh, on GitHub, has a lot of uh, interesting uh, functionality for testing uh, REST stuff. So if you're doing that, definitely check that out. Um, and then, again, we'll post the, the link to the article that uh, Sasha was talking about, too, because I <laughs> now want to go read that. It was super. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, Brian Barry, you tweeted us a DevOps, dear Abby. However, your question was such a good one that we're going to do a whole episode on it. So we haven't forgotten about you, but we're going to do a, a larger segment uh, episode on, on your question, uh, which was about Git merge strategies. Uh, so yeah, that's DevOps, dear Abby. We'll do that again. Uh, it's one of our favorite segments, uh, and, and we enjoy chit-chatting about uh, your guys' questions. So uh, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From Minneapolis, this is Sasha signing off. And we'll see you all in a couple of weeks. <laughs>